Today I had a chance to talk with uh, Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie about his book, We the Fallen People. I got this book about a year ago and uh, read about half of it, and it was great. It was captivating. Uh, as I say on the podcast, man, I was turning over every page and scribbling on every page. Uh, but <laughs> there is just a fire hose of books coming, uh, coming at us, and I set it aside. It got buried. And uh, I didn't get back to it until uh, a month or so ago when I started to read other people writing about it. And I got an email actually from uh, McKinsey because he was saying, look, I'm just I'm just trying to get this book out there. You don't have to buy it. I I will send you a copy for free. And that seemed a little bit. He actually said he'd send 25 copies for free. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to that book. And I picked it up and it excited that uh, he was willing to give me an hour to talk about this. So this is a book that is looking at uh, the United States at its founding and looking at some of the assumptions of our founders as it relates to human nature and democracy. And it is, uh, he started this four years ago, but it seems like he was able to look in a crystal ball and say, what, what are people going to need to be thinking about and reading at this particular political moment? So uh, he is a thoughtful guy. This is an interesting book. It's not a, uh, it's not an academic book, but it's not a beach read either somewhere in between there. Uh, but I would commend it to you. We, the fallen people, and uh, hopefully after you hear our interview, um, you'll go out and get a copy. Welcome back to uh, another podcast, and uh, we are moving away from the 100-plus series that we've been in, and it is my privilege today to have a chance to talk to the author of We the Fallen People. Dr. Um, Robert Tracy McKenzie is a professor at Wheaton College. He is uh, also the Arthur F. Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning there. I did a PhD at Vanderbilt and is the author of several books, uh, has an expertise in the Civil War. And uh, I have uh, already offline brought him greetings from a mutual friend, Nick Perrin. So let me start. Uh, so this is the book, I'll hold it up for everybody to see. Um, my copy is heavily uh, marked. I have, uh, oh my goodness, uh, I've, I, you know, every, every page sort of gets scribbled on uh, and dog-eared. And uh, so I want to commend you. Uh, I've been recommending your book for a while now. I, I think it's well-written and accessible and interesting. And, and I really, having said all that, I really didn't like it. Uh, that's to say, I found it uh, a little unsettling. Uh, I don't like your conclusions. I don't disagree with your conclusions. I thought you built your case very very well, very carefully. It just forced me to think about things that I think are discouraging. And um, so as we get started, why don't I just ask you, give us a two minute flyover of this book. Uh, well, first of all, Mike, it's a privilege to get to talk with you. I'm grateful for that. Um, and I'm not really surprised when you say there are things about the book that you didn't like. Um, that's been a response I've had pretty regularly when I speak with uh, groups that uh, uh, have uh, read part or all of it. Uh, my wife has said that I have the spiritual gift of discouragement, so I credit yeah. that. Uh, so here's sort of the, the flyover. The, the book is about the relationship between the way that we think about democracy and the often 
uh, unconscious or implicit views that we're holding of, of human nature at the same time. And, and I basically think that any uh, attitude that we have toward democracy rests to some degree on understanding of human nature, even if we're not aware of it. Then with that sort of as a background, uh, the book takes a historical overview, starting with the creation of the Constitution in 1787, uh, on through the roughly the first half century of American history under the Constitution. And I argue that the, the common uh, cultural understanding of human nature goes through a radical transformation during that, um, that period of a couple of generations or so. At the time of the creation of the Constitution, it was pretty much a, a, a truism, largely unchallenged um, conviction that men and women are fallen, uh, that we are predisposed to be selfish, even though that we are capable of great acts of love or kindness or courage or charity, but we're predisposed to selfishness and the Constitution took that into consideration. Uh, and then within a couple of generations for all practical purposes, lots of exceptions, but for all practical purposes, the, the general uh, cultural understanding is that we're basically good. And so I talk about uh, the democratic gospel, which is the idea that we are basically good, and democratic faith, which is the message that we can reliably trust uh, the decisions of the majority to promote just, just outcomes. So that's the most important uh, theme. I call that the great reversal. Uh, and then a lot of the rest of the book is, is trying to help readers think critically about that. Uh, and part of how I go about that is I enlist the help of um, someone much wiser than I, uh, this uh, visitor to the United States uh, in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville. So I draw a lot from his book, Democracy in America, uh, and try to make that accessible for 21st century readers who are wanting to think Christianly about American democracy. So I loved um, about oh, somewhere partway through the preface, I figured out that it was a setup and I thought that was very well done. So uh, I have a, a newsletter goes out on Fridays and I, I listed the, uh, I often have quotes that I think are worth, worth re-quoting and I listed this, uh, took this quote attributed to Tocqueville and then underneath it, I said, fake news, you know, this was um, quoted by, you know, Eisenhower and Nixon and Clinton and da-da-da-da-da, but he didn't say it. And not only would, did he not say it, he wouldn't have said it with a gun to his head. Uh, it was not, it was very much not what he was thinking. So, yeah, I, so have you read all 900 pages of Tocqueville? <laughs> I mean, I've, that's I have. I, I have. In fact, I'll have to say I've read it probably, I guess, four times uh, through. It's, it's, um, uh, one columnist uh, quite a long time ago said it's one of the uh, great uh, offsided never read books. Uh, yes. and, and the reality is, I don't think it's it's read very often uh, today. We are, um, we are, uh, we're recording this on Friday. I just heard that Salman Rushdie was uh, stabbed. Uh, his book, and it, so one of the younger staff was saying, who's, who's he? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but I was explaining... Uh, I said, you wrote this book, Satanic Verses. I said, one of the books lots of people bought and nobody read. I tried like three times and it was, yes, there's a lot of, lot of books out there that people quote that they haven't actually yeah. read. So yeah, well, good for you for reading it. Uh, I'm glad you did. So some of us don't have to. And um, I, wanted, I wanted everybody to know that I read Moby Dick and I read uh, Brothers Karamazov several times. Uh, but yes, not uh, not Tocqueville. So 
here, here was my, what I, when I'm talking with people about this book, and again, I have been recommending it. Um, I said, there's, and they asked why. I said, well, there's four things. I said, one, I said, uh, so McKinsey says, look, uh, democracy, the founders were very sober-minded about democracy. They do not have the faith in democracy that we have. And I said, they were, um, they, 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 they just came at this differently. They thought it was the best, you know, it was a good form of government. They, they were advocating for it. Now, of course, what do they mean by democracy? And what do we mean by republic? And these words get used so many different ways by different people. But they were generally saying, yes, you know, we, we're in favor of this experiment. We're, we're risking our lives to try and make this work. But secondly, they had a very sober view of, of human nature. Uh, interestingly, it was just sort of fascinating. I said, you know, I go, I go, McKinsey goes and makes the point that the founders were not writing theologically about the Bible or the nature of God or salvation or Jesus. They were writing sort of waxing theological about mankind and human nature and sin. And it was, it was a relatively orthodox view of the fall. People have value, high worth but are deeply broken and consequently complicated. And then I said, then I said, he, he really doesn't like Andrew Jackson. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if, if you know, uh, I listened to a podcast, Jonah Goldberg, he used to be with the National Review. He's got this thing called The Remnant. And every time Woodrow Wilson's name gets mentioned, he always has this Darth Vader Star Wars music come <laughs> on. He really doesn't like Woodrow Wilson. And I thought, uh, McKenzie needs to have this Darth Vader music come on every time Andrew Jackson. I didn't know much about Jackson. Populist was about all I knew, but wow, uh, you you don't like Jackson. And then, um, and I said, then the fourth thing is, I said he sort of projects ahead and tries to figure out where we ought to go. And I said, it's, um, I said, those are my four my four takeaways. So let me ask you to comment a little bit more on each of these four. So. The founders favored democracy to a degree, but they were very skittish in this endorsement. And they meant something a little bit different by democracy. They didn't, they didn't imagine this uh, election, popular election of a president. Uh, so what, what were they advocating for and how far did they advocate? Yeah, that's a great question. It's complicated. The answer is complicated because uh, words change their meaning over time. And the, the framers of the Constitution wouldn't have even used the word democracy. It meant something very specific in that context, not what we mean uh, today. Uh, but what they did believe was that the majority should rule. Uh, and in, in fact, they would have said, and they did say uh, over and over again, uh, that that's the, the litmus test of a truly free people. Uh, if the majority is not ultimately prevailing, they would have said you don't live in a form of government that's uh, accountable uh, to the public will. Uh, and of course the Declaration of Independence said that's the, that's the foundation of legitimate government is the consent of the governed. So they held two things in uh, tandem uh, simultaneously. They said the majority must prevail and they said the majority is predisposed to seek their own interests over the common good. And, and that's, that's holding two things in tension that that aren't comfortably held together, and, and, and we don't like that. Uh, what the um, Jacksonian America would have done half a century later 
is they say that tension doesn't exist. We don't have to worry about majority rule because people naturally uh, are virtuous. They naturally seek the good uh, of, of others. Uh, and so that tension goes away. But the thing I try to stress to readers is we can't understand our constitution as it was uh, structured without understanding that tension that the framers felt. Uh, all those uh, attributes of the constitution, the separation of powers, the checks and balances that we uh, allude to, those were all growing out of an understanding of human nature, uh, which said that while we want to see the majority prevail ultimately, we sort of want to slow down the process of government if possible, uh, because uh, we don't actually think the sort of the whims or the passions of the population are very reliably uh, just. Uh, and so you slow down that process of, uh, of government. So when we complain today about government not being able to act quickly, there's a sense mm -hmm. in which that's a le really legitimate complaint. It's also a sense in which the framers intended for government to not be able to right, act to be, quickly. To be reflective. So, okay, well, I, I, I certainly, I remember waking up to the idea that um, everybody was defer, everybody defers to the market and let the, you know, let the market decide it's, it's, you know, it's a million people voting and, and all of a sudden going, but wait a minute, but it's a million selfish people voting. It's, it's just, uh, we're just multiplying in one sense. The Now, I, I, to be clear, I always want to say this, I'm a capitalist. I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't come up with a better system. Capitalism that is shaped by Christian compassion and conviction seems to me to be the best that we're going to get, but it's broken. It's a broken system. It will have flaws. So when it comes to, when it comes to our government, Yes, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little nervous, a little gun shy since you uh, took away the uh, the Tocqueville quote. It, did Churchill say democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms of government? As far as I know. Uh, okay. but I, I'm not going to stake my reputation on that. But as okay. far well, as I know. So I, 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 I feel that way about our government. I feel it's the best system that we can get. I've traveled a lot. I always say to people, wow. You know, you feel a lot better about the United States when you spend time in, you know, in 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 Africa, Asia, Latin America. I mean, wherever you want to go. So I, I am, um, I I was unprepared, I guess, for how uh, skeptical they were that democracy would work long term. Uh, did they? So their their views, as you're saying, they had a very um, alert view of human nature they were aware that we are we are broken is this just because they were paying attention and and is this i mean does this really sort of take on a, a more thoughtfulness after the you know the the initial effort at democracy and then it's not working and they've got to call the convention together and give the you know the federal government more power than they had given it is it is it shaped by scripture at all? I mean, is there evidence to say somebody's reading Paul and Romans yeah. and saying we're really more broken? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, to some degree, I shy away from that because it's a question that Christians have often uh, wanted to argue about um, in the uh, public square. Um, the, the short answer is, most of the prominent individuals that shaped the constitution didn't talk about their personal beliefs, personal religious beliefs uh, openly. Uh, and 
nor did they make explicitly scriptural arguments. So if you read through the notes of the Constitutional Convention, or if you read through the notes of the 13 ratification conventions that took place, um, you're just not going to find more than a, a handful of uh, allusions uh, explicitly uh, to scripture. How, having said that, uh, I think we acknowledge that uh, culturally, there's this context in which uh, the acceptance of what a theologian would call original sin was still widespread. Uh, and the, I think the framers of the Constitution would have said uh, that in addition to the sort of traditional teachings of Christianity, they would have said history taught uh, right. that uh, men and women were, were basically uh, selfish. They thought philosophy uh, taught that. Classical literature taught that. So, so there are all kinds of uh, influences that are dovetailing to sort of reinforce this understanding uh, of human nature that they that they held. What's interesting, yes, I mean, if you look at history, you've got, you know, Plato doesn't advocate democracy, and everybody's always skeptical of everybody else, and, and with Socrates, others, maybe you've got that self-skepticism a little bit more prominent. Um, and I think it was uh, Chesterton who said that uh, depravity is the only doctrine we can get just by reading the paper or right. looking at our heart, whatever. Okay, so um, I've, I've joked that you don't like Jackson. Uh, I don't like Jackson after reading your two chapters on Jackson, but do you think it's, I mean, did Jackson change things or Jackson's just the guy who happened to change things? I yeah. mean, would we be, it's hard for me to imagine that we would have, you take Jackson out of it. Somebody else was going to come along and figure out, Hey, there's political magic in saying to the people, yeah, I really believe in you and we're going to do this and let's take the Hill and together we'll be right and just and good. And yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And the way historians often deal with that question is they, they ask whether Jackson sort of uh, literally changes the course of history or if he really effectively symbolizes larger trends that were unfolding anyway. And I think that's what you're getting at. And I think that's what I would agree with. I'm not really arguing uh, that he um, changes cultural values as much as he so powerfully, effectively embodies, embodies them. Um, you know, his own personal story, which historians have often caught attention to, born into poverty. His father dies actually before he's born. He has minimal education. So uh, he's the sort of perfect rags to riches kind of story. Right. Before that was a very common sort of stereotype. He, in fact, he's one of the individuals who helps to create that uh, stereotype. Uh, and yet there's all these contradictions. I mean, by the time that he is a candidate for office, he's one of the wealthiest men in America. He has one of the largest plantations in the South. He owns more than 100 slaves. Uh, himself. Uh, I talk in the book about the fine china and the imported uh, tapestries uh, and piano, the piano yeah. that cost more than most farms at the time. So, I mean, he hardly was hobnobbing with the, with the common man, uh, but, but he nicely encap uh, encapsulated that. And, and I think we'd have to say, uh, I'm not the only person who says this at all, that he really is the first presidential candidate uh, who benefits from a calculated campaign to craft an image. Hmm. Uh, and so he has uh, supporters who are writing campaign literature, uh, really pushing this idea uh, of the, the people's candidate, the common man and so forth, uh, 
uh, and he he benefits from from that. So I, I'm not going to find it looking at the book, but I, I I shared with people that you're fairly pessimistic. Again, it, it feels pessimistic to me. When I was reading the section that talked about the campaign when Jackson is running against Adams and Jackson, you know, one of them says the other one's mom was a prostitute and, and they just have these horrific, scurrilous claims that they're making about the other. I thought, well, this makes me feel a little bit better about today. Uh, I mean, this is pretty, pretty uh, ridiculous kinds of claims. You know, what, what is it? Adams likes to wear silk underwear. It's like, like, okay, let's just sit around and come up with the worst whatever the worst yeah. come up with things that we can say to try and make the other look bad but so if that was going on uh if there was this kind of uh animus in the system are things worse now i mean <laughs> you you talk about that this is you know going back to the civil war, the polarization that, that we have in our, our country right now is reaching levels uh, not known. So, yeah. I mean, you're, you're concerned. Yeah, yeah, so that's a great, great question. First thing I would say is I like to tell my students that any idea that there was this golden age of civil discourse when everyone was uh, interacting at this really elevated level, that's pretty much a, a, a fiction. Uh, one of the reasons I was drawn to this period is because there are themes that that we would recognize today. Not only is there the intense polarization, but there is, um, uh, at the time at least, for some, a common response to say that when the other side wins, that's an illegitimate outcome. And, and that was the whole thrust of the controversy over the election of 1824, when Jackson ultimately doesn't win the runoff in the House of Representatives. Uh, immediately, you know, his supporters say this was stolen. This was this is fundamentally uh, illegitimate. Uh, and Jackson's quite quick to pick up on that and, and to say that I was the choice of the majority. I wasn't elected, even though, as I point out, he wasn't the choice of a majority of voters right. uh, at all. Uh, and so that resonates. I think American Americans have always been pretty bitter uh, opponents in the political realm. But there's a line that we cross when we say, uh, that uh, this outcome is so fundamentally illegitimate that we can no longer really trust the process anymore. Uh, and, um, you know, had Jackson lost again in 1828 when he runs a second time, um, I think there were individuals in, who had been quite willing to say, this is a sign that our system is broken and, and can't, can't work. Uh, and so that to me is the, is the scary sign. Uh, as a historian of the of the Civil War, I mean, one of the things that I wrestle with is uh, when we cross a line when individuals say, I simply am not going to accept the outcome of this uh, election. Um, a lot of individuals say, you know, democracy begins not when the majority gets its way. Democracy begins when the minority doesn't get it gets its way and is willing to accept that temporarily. Uh, and that that I think is the, the red flag, the warning signal that we need to pay attention to. I am. Um, I'm, I'm trying to finish a, a book for the fall, and I was working on it this week. And I ran across a sermon 
it's on the Bible and the authority of scripture. And I, I ran across this sermon I had preached back in the, or the mid 2000s. And uh, I referenced the Gore uh, Bush campaign and election. And, and that, and then I just say, look, uh, it was fascinating and then it was horrifying. And then we all watched the hanging chads and, but we, we sort of knew, and this is me, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we knew that the Supreme court ruled that once they ruled, that would be it. Everybody would trust the outcome. And I remember being a little bit impressed. I remember being thankful that Gore accepted the outcome and just being a little surprised and saying, well, that's not what happens in history. A lot of times. But now I read it and I go, oh, my goodness, if that happened, there, there would not be acceptance. What would happen? So I, I am. Um, yeah, that's that I, I, I am uh, concerned about just how fragile things seem to be at this particular moment. And um, and and I guess that's why perhaps your book is getting such um, getting such a strong response or people are saying they don't like it it's forcing us to sort of mm -hmm. chase yeah. this down yeah can i say uh, something can i say one more thing absolutely john you, uh you've mentioned a couple of times um that there are things about the the book that are discouraging uh i i just would want to stress that i think the takeaway message from the framers of the constitution is there was a there was a measure of optimism uh, in their approach. For one thing, if they had no hope for human nature, they wouldn't have said, we have to let the majority rule. Their optimism is that they believe that they can structure government in such a way that it can actually, in an incremental way, promote more just outcomes. Uh, and, and I think that actually grew out of their skeptical understanding of human nature. They said, because men and women are selfish, if we take that into consideration, structure government in a certain way, we actually can arrive at acceptable outcomes, morally acceptable outcomes more often uh, than not. But the secret began with their understanding, not that we're basically good, but that we right. tend to be self-interested. But, but wouldn't they have said that people have to be virtuous or they're, you know, we've got these quotes, you know, that we, we need uh, religious people, uh, I think of the Oz, you had an Oz Guinness reference somewhere in there that yeah. his triangle of virtue yeah. and freedom and faith. Yeah. And we need, we, we've got to have faith in order to have freedom and we've got to have freedom in order to have, I, I, I'd have to think about how that triangle works. Yeah. I just know that yeah. one of them leads to the next. And there is this sense that there has to be virtuous people, or we just can't, hire enough police to try and keep things going and yes and, and we're back to the idea again that their understanding was um uh, was complicated do they want a, a citizenry that is virtuous in the sense of denying their self-interest to promote the the general welfare absolutely and they're saying that over and over and over again but as i stress in the book if you read those quotes in context and and here's the danger we very often because particularly christians and of course i identify with this desire, but because we're wanting to convince the culture of the importance of religious faith, our temptation is to cherry pick quotes and say, aha, look at, look at this. Very often when the uh, prominent founders are talking about the importance of virtue, they're saying at the same time, 
we don't see much virtue anywhere. I, I mean, they're emphasizing virtue because they, they think there's a lack of it. Right. Uh, and their understanding uh, after the Articles of Confederation, which was the first, really is the first constitution for the United States that lasts for only about seven or eight years, their understanding is that we, we've had too high a view of human nature. We thought people would naturally seek the good uh, of others, and we're just not sure that that was uh, accurate um, uh, at all. So, uh, so the framers are doing two things simultaneously. They're exhorting the public to exercise virtue, and, and they believe that religion is the best foundation for virtue. Absolutely. But at the same time, they're saying, uh, and, and this is not our natural bent. Uh, to, to be uh, good. And, and the reality is in the context of the late 18th century, when they're promoting uh, the importance of religion and saying that individuals are basically selfish, most of the pastors across the land would say, amen. Uh, that's exactly what we're preaching from the pulpit. It's only right. a later time when that scene is more sort of intention. Right. Right. So, well, let me let me steer this in a couple of different directions. First of all, uh, I've read a couple of your other books. I read your book on history, a little, a little, little book, book for on new historians. History. Yeah, is that uh, so? Is that is that title sort of a knockoff of uh, Tilika, a little exercise for young theologians, or is that uh, just a whole? It, it's just a it's a series. University Press does. They have little book for new, all different disciplines. So I just was given that title. Okay, well, so I read that, and I also read your uh, book on Thanksgiving, and I know I heard this somewhere that you really don't like to be asked the question, what did they have to eat on the first Thanksgiving? <laughs> so I've got another question that I know you really don't want to be asked. I'm not going to ask it, and that is, you know, is America founded as a Christian country? Mm -hmm. I get asked that, I get asked that, and I'm frustrated enough because people want a yes or no answer, and it's like, mm -hmm. uh, wow, there's that's just such a complicated question yeah. but i hear you writing about I, I mean you you say in the preface or somewhere that you are you like america you love america you're patriotic so in what ways is america exceptional hmm. oh boy you know that's a hard question and gosh i don't know that i want to that you I want to okay. touch it, but can I just, if I, if I were to give you a simplistic answer, okay, it would be that what I think, I think you could argue what made the constitutional system so extraordinarily successful was its realistic understanding of human nature. I mean, that's okay. one of the things that separates, say, the French Revolution from the, right. the you know, <laughs> right. uh, and and so when when I write in part sort of with a kind of prophetic voice to contemporary Americans because I want to see this country flourish. Uh, I think that, as I say in the book, I believe we ground our support for democracy on the wrong foundation. I'm, I don't want Americans to reject democracy. I want them to build their commitment to democracy on a foundation that will last. And I just don't think it's uh, a belief in the sort of innate goodness of, of human beings. Right. So, Tocqueville sees some of this, and you uh, you certainly celebrate him. He comes up, let's just say he comes off better than Jackson does. He does, yeah. <laughs> definitely, yes. Uh, young guy, at the time that he does this, um, why, and I know you, you talk about this, but talk about, talk about this in the book, talk about why you think 
uh, this young Frenchman is able to see things so clearly and to, to offer this assessment of the American experiment and our wrestling with freedom. Yeah, yeah. So uh, for, for your listeners, uh, Tocqueville is um, this young Frenchman. He's 25 when he comes to the United States, which is hard for me to imagine. Uh, uh, spends about nine months in country, spends another eight or nine years reflecting on what he thought, and then he writes this 900-page um, book. Um, scholars would say that Tocqueville is what we call a liminal figure, meaning he sort of doesn't fit into any neat category. Uh, he's born after the French Revolution, so he's, he's from aristocratic lineage, uh, but the old sort of aristocratic uh, world is, is passing away. But he's certainly not yet uh, a product of our world, so he just doesn't fit. Uh, and so I, I think he really comes to America as an outsider. Uh, he's neither American nor is he democratic in his natural sort of uh, values. He's very sympathetic, though, with the United States, uh, but he also is willing to be critical. And as he puts it in one point, he, he says that, um, you know, our, our friends really rarely tell us the truth uh, and our enemies we don't listen to. And he mm. wants to be that friend who tells us uh, the truth. Uh, and so he comes to the United States and he's asking himself two questions. Let me back up and say he absolutely believes democracy is, is the wave of the future. What he wants to ask is, what will this mean for his two deepest commitments? And he tells you that his two deepest commitments uh, are liberty and human dignity. So uh, having lived after the French Revolution, his parents have been imprisoned and so on. He, he worries what will happen uh, to liberty uh, what will happen to human dignity in a democratic society? What do I have to fear? What do I have to hope? Uh, and he actually makes a compelling case that democracy is not intrinsically just or unjust. It is not, it is morally indeterminate. Right. Very, very last sentence of the book is that democracy can end in right. uh, liberty or tyranny, civilization right. or anarchy, poverty or misery. And so he's holding up this wide range of, of possible outcomes uh, that democracy can lead to. Uh, and it, I think it ought to scare the uh, dickens out of us. Uh, and, and then he begins to talk about what is it about America that has allowed it to flourish so far? Because uh, the people are not virtuous. I'm here and they're well, not virtuous. Yeah, he, he says what he says is that Americans sure think they're virtuous. But he says explicitly, I don't, I don't see it. Uh, but he talks about things. He talks about uh, the uh, circumstances. He believes that just the, the geography of the United States, these vast oceans that at the time protected the United States from external uh, threat, uh, allowed the government to be smaller than it would have been if war was a constant possibility. He's a deep admirer of the founding generation. He believes that Jacksonian America has inherited a set of political institutions uh, that they're benefiting from. And the irony is they no longer accept the worldview that undergirded those institutions, but they're still sure. reaping the benefits of them. So he talks about that. Then he talks about mores. Uh, and that's a term we don't use much anymore, but it, it, sometimes it's referred to as habits of the heart, these, these attitudes that we bring uh, to uh, our, our lives with one another. Uh, and when he looks at the mores of American people, uh, he says that uh, it's, it's not that Americans are naturally virtuous, but they've learned what he calls habits of restraint. Uh, and uh, he, he argues that, in effect, 
that they've learned that their first impulses often aren't in their own interest. Uh, and so they delay gratification. They, they, they try to tolerate individuals who differ from them in their beliefs and so forth, believing that they reap the benefits of that uh, in the long term. Uh, and so the question then, you know, that we would ask today is, do we have those same sorts of values? Do, do Americans, do they have habits of restraint, uh, for example? Uh, do we have a kind of skepticism of our own inclinations that leads us to be a little bit more patient and, and charitable to others? I'm not going to answer that question for you, but I think those are the questions to ask. Well, as you're, as you're describing it this way, this idea that Jackson was sort of living off of the, uh, the credit of the founders, it sounds a little bit um, like Nietzsche suggesting that um, the 20th century, as soon as it ran out of the, ran past the halo effect of the Christian uh, worldview, as soon as God was truly dead, that it was going to go in a very different direction than everybody thought. Everybody thought it would be wonderful and we're good people, we're going to hold hands, we're going to sing, you know, kumbaya, we're going to share, everybody's going to get along, and Nietzsche said, no, not at all, and Jackson is sort of saying, we're good, we just have to rely on our goodness, and this is going to be great, and uh, Tocqueville saying, no, not really sure how this is going to play out. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Uh, Tocqueville, uh, coins this, it, it's, a, it's a concept that exists beforehand, but he really sort of articulates it well, uh, called the uh, tyranny of the majority. Uh, and one of the things that he was aware of uh, was that, and the framers would have accepted this, that, that power always is a threat to liberty. Uh, it doesn't matter who wields it, whether it's a dictator or a majority, uh, that in the United States, the potential for the majority to oppress minority was great, but he doesn't believe that that is happening as, as much as he would have expected. Uh, and um, when he looks at the answers why, um, he tends to point toward things that, uh, from a Christian perspective, I say, were more the grace of God than, than the virtue of the American people. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's a message that, that we, need, um, we need to hear. Um, Tofel is writing, you know, his background, four of the nine closest members of his family had been guillotined during the French Revolution. He believes that uh, mass rule can lead to all kinds of horrific outcomes. Uh, the trick is uh, to let the people rule and avoid that. But he never thinks that, that that is natural. It's not inevitable. Coming back to the last sentence, democracy can lead to tyranny just as much as to, to liberty. So used to be that I was surprised at the way people talked about the founders and talked about the constitution. And there was a, uh, just a reverence or a default or it's in the constitution and the founders. And there was almost a, uh, not a deification, but just this mystical aura that surrounded them. I didn't think much of it. Recently, I hear people, and I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to just pick on the left because I, I think we see some crazy stuff going on on the right, also. But I hear people on the left uh, making very illiberal statements. 
that they don't like democracy, they're not in favor of it, or freedom of speech is not a good idea. There are some thoughts that should not ever be expressed. And it used to be that I expected those people, I just thought that they were just being hypocrites. That, and as soon as you, and, and that even if you pointed out to them, you're being a hypocrite, uh, you, you believe in free speech, but you're trying to shut down these people and that's just being hypocritical. <clears throat> but now I don't hear that. I hear, no, I, I don't believe in free speech. You don't have the right to say what you want to say. And I'm now I'm sort of shocked on the other side. I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, I'm a little bit more scared of where we're at today than in the past. It's just like, okay, the founders, I don't think they, I mean, I don't think they hung the moon, but it seems like it's the best we got going. So you want to treat them like they yeah. walked on water. Uh, I'm not perfectly okay with that, but I'm not going to, spent a lot of time trying to talk you out of it. Now I feel a little bit more unnerved by what I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you think I should be? Well, I mean, there's a lot to be unnerved by. <laughs> uh, I, um, I would argue, I, I think I would argue this pretty strongly that um, because I think we're fallen, uh, I think uh, Americans' commitment to some of the values that the framers bequeathed to us has always been uh, pretty inconsistently applied. And one of the things that I uh, argue in, in the book, even from the very beginning, when, when Andrew Jackson is um, really beginning to abuse the power of his office, uh, it's um, his supporters who say that's fine, and his opponents who say, wait a minute, there's a principle here involved, right? Uh, but it, it tends to be that our skepticism of power uh, really kicks into high gear when we're not the ones wielding power. Mm. And, and then when we have the, uh, the power, it's amazing how that tends to, to fall, um, fall away. Uh, and so I, th I think you see that today. I think um, when, when someone, you gave the example, when someone on the left says, I don't believe in, in free speech, uh, what they're essentially imagining, uh, I think, is a position where they will have enough cultural power uh, to regulate what gets accepted and what doesn't. And of course, if we, take, if we take the fall seriously, I think our political philosophies start with the idea uh, that power will be abused uh, and what is a way to distribute power that, that minimizes that. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the ways philosophers approach that is to say, always imagine that you, when you're thinking of your values, uh, political values, imagine that you don't know who will be in the majority, that you right. don't know who's gonna have the power is it a system that you could live with if you were in the minority and vulnerable? And, and to me, the example that you gave is just an example of people who are not thinking very far down the road. And that's one right. of the things that Toefel said at, in the 1830s. He says, he, he, he says he's writing really to his French, um, uh, French neighbors, but he says, I'm not sure that I have confidence that, that this generation really is committed to liberty. And I think we have every generation, we sort of have to evaluate again, are we truly committed to liberty or are we willing to make really short-sighted compromises in, in the short term that have devastating consequences in, in the long term? I'm, and I'm not sure, I mean, I realize I'm sort of late to the party, uh, but 10 years ago, I, I started to realize everybody's writing about freedom whether they call it freedom or not, but everybody's, it's like the word liberal, 
it can mean classic liberalism means something radically different. And, and I'm listening to people and some people are talking about negative freedom. Some people are talking about positive freedom. And it's just like, wow, there's a lot of not communicating going on here uh, around this topic of freedom. And I'm, I am, I'm, I am your book helped me, unfortunately understand just how fragile some of these things are. Yeah. Um, so let me ask this, Let, let's just, play out i mean it's hard hard to look ahead and imagine that at any point in the next couple of years things get better i keep looking for abraham lincoln i'm i'm tempted to write him in for office because i think we really need and i i've, I've been down to the lincoln library in uh, springfield recently and that was just helpful to just realize how difficult his job was and how he was just being so mercilessly attacked and i was a little traumatized to hear what the names people were calling him i wanted to say wait don't you understand he's the best president we had uh, so looking ahead at hard to imagine that whoever wins in 2024 we obviously we don't even know who's going to run i mean both I mean, it sure looks like trump's going to run and biden says he's going to run who knows who's going to get the nominations that's a long time away but Hard to imagine anybody losing and accepting defeat. Yeah. So how does this play out? You're a historian. I mean, America is unique in this sense. Our government is unique. But how do cultures correct? I mean, I, I think of, if you asked me that question, I'd say, well, revival, yeah. war, uh, total destruction and you start over i is there a more moderate correction that gets us back to something that looks like it's sustainable i mean that's that sounds yeah. very pessimistic to ask but i it feels like it's part of the question we should be asking yeah it is i mean i've been reading a lot just even even this summer from uh social psychologists and political scientists and everybody has a you know a position uh, on this, and some of the things that I think are going on are, are sort of difficult to uh, explain briefly and probably beyond our ability to control. I mean, when you're thinking about an individual citizen, what can I do that could possibly have a positive benefit? That can be super, super daunting. Uh, here's what I like to do, Mike, if you'll let me, if, and, and that's to sort of reframe the, the question just a little sure. bit. I don't know what the solution is that uh, turns down the heat and uh, reduces some of the you know, bitter polarization that our uh, public life exhibits right now. I really wrote the book out of a concern for the testimony of the church you know, in this context. Yeah. Uh, and I say early on, you know, I just long to see Christians thinking Christianly about the way that they engage. And I, I'm not convinced that we always do. So even though we, we can't make this polarization go away, I think individually in our small circles of relationship in the way that we interact with others online and uh, in the flesh, um, we can begin to be consciously aware of, uh, of what's going on uh, in, in theological terms. And, and the, the way I understand this polarization that we have is I, I see a, a culture uh, in which we're divided. The stories that sort of enfold us are always us versus them stories. 
It's, it's not a, a common effort toward a common good. It's us versus them. Uh, and we fall trapped to stories where those folks, whoever they are, we're not really attributing the image of God to them. I always like to come back to C.S. Lewis's yeah. quote, you've never met a merely ordinary human being. Right. Uh, but we don't think that way about those folks. And then when we're thinking about our group, however we define that, we're not really feeling very heavily the weight of original sin. Uh, I love Alexander Solzhenitsyn's famous quote where he said, you know, one of the ways to understand all this is to ask, where does the line that separates good and evil run? Right. So my heart is right through, right through yeah. every individual heart. But when you listen to political rhetoric, it's always we're always externalizing evil. If those people could be thwarted, our lives would be better. Uh, and so at the very least, as Christians, we need to have some radar that goes off and says, no, wait a minute. That's not true. That right. is a contradiction of the gospel. And it, it may not necessarily immediately lead to. Um, uh, change in our political system, but as Christians, we don't have to be fueling the polarization uh, no. that is uh, so destabilizing our political system. It it does seem like, um, I mean, I read this, you know, I read the the statistics that say, you know, only three percent of people tweet, and you know, and and they're on the extreme left and the extreme right, and and you know, you you'd feel a lot better about the world if you just spent more time with your neighbors, where whatever their political convictions might be. Uh, so I hear that. I don't, at least at this stage, I don't see anybody who is being ironic, going very far. Yeah. Um, it's these are hard. As you know, I mean, as, a, as an academic, people want greater certitude. They want simple. I think you've got a quote about that. You know, simple and wrong is going to go a lot further than. Yep. Uh, yep. That's Tocqueville, actually. Yeah. And and uh, I was listening today, I was thinking of Neil Postman's statement that, you know, part of the real challenge about TV is not what's on it. And what, it's just the way it's changed our ability to be engaged in a conversation and like the Lincoln Douglas debates, whether this is true or not, I think he said they were like six hours long. And now it's, you know, Senator so-and-so, what's your view on the Middle East? You've got 30 seconds to answer. Mm -hmm. Well, your your only thing you can say is, I'm for Israel, right? I mean, I got that I can't have a nuanced answer. And people don't like nuance. And yeah. um, but okay, well, by the way, a couple of years ago I was in was at a conference and it was a political scientist was uh, speaking. He made a statement that he said he had studied his doctoral work had been on civilizations that had collapsed. Mm. He had studied 30 some civilizations that had collapsed. And he said they, that they all had two things in common. Uh, one was debt and two was sexual immorality. Mm. And then he went on and he was talking about other things. And at the end, I raised my hand and I said, okay, <laughs> dad and sexual immorality. I think, I, I think I've seen that. Uh, how long do we have? And he said, uh, you know, look, um, when it goes, it goes quickly, something like that. And I called him a couple of years later. I said, did you say, because he said, every time I see these two things, the society collapses. Mm. 
And I said, did you really say that? And he said, I said it, but I don't want to be cited. He goes, it's, I, I, he teaches at some university. He says, I can't, I can't say every time, but say mostly, I can live with mostly. So I, I just find myself saying, okay, well, I need to be gracious and loving and humble. Your call, humility, self-awareness. Uh, I'm always going to be, I'm going to mishandle power whenever I get it. You know, it's, it's, I'm going to have to just assume that and to pray for revival. Um, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I always say, look, the other institutions, the family, the, the, the state, uh, government, uh, uh, media, business, no one's got a chance unless we do our job, right? We've got to see people changed by, by Jesus. And that's, that's my lane. So I'm going to stay in it. Well, um, so thank you. Uh, thank you. What are you working on now? You have a, a I know, I think I read this was a four or five year project. So that's right. Uh, well, it's a good question uh, and ironic uh, because of what you've commented on, uh, Mike. I'm actually uh, right at the beginning of a book that tentatively I'm calling Before the House Divides Again, listening to Lincoln before the next Civil War, mm. uh, because I actually think he had a lot of things that we need to hear that are relevant today. Okay, well, I will look forward to hearing that, uh, reading that, and having you back on when uh, that book rolls out. I hope, well, I hope we don't need it for like another 10 years to take your time, but I have a feeling <laughs> you might want to get this, uh, might want to get this one out there sooner yeah. than that. Yeah. And this will only be like the uh, 10,000th book on Abraham Lincoln, right? I mean, uh, uh, yeah, so we certainly need another one, right? That's that's my well, thinking. I, I wrote a book on Jesus, so I, I've, I've actually... Uh, I've actually contributed in a, in a realm where there's a hundred thousand books. So anyway, well, uh, thank you so much for uh, being generous with your time. And uh, thank you for this book. Much to think about. Uh, I will pass along your greetings to, uh, to Dr. Perrin and uh, we'll look forward to an excuse to talk to you again. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Um, so much, Mike. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.